0: Hi, I'm Kine. I'm a drag queen, a TikToker, and a mathematics communicator. And this is No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast. You know how little kids will say whatever's on their minds, no matter how direct or rude it may sound? Maybe we need more of that when it comes to protecting our planet.
1: I developed my love for working with youth in the LGBTQ community and in the way that youth have this ability to sort of cut through.
0: This is Matt Dos Santos, the managing attorney at Our Children's Trust. They help young people bring lawsuits to demand a safe climate. The youth come from all over the world, Australia, the Netherlands, Pakistan, Uganda, the United States.
1: One of our youth who's I think exuberant might be one of the the best words to describe Levi, who's in Florida. He lives on a a barrier island.
0: So I know that
1: I'm 10 years old and I can't vote, but when we win this lawsuit, we're not
0: asking for money. We want them to make a science-based climate recovery plan. Matt says that without recognizing a fundamental right to a safe environment, none of our other rights really matter. That's part of what led them to leave a job as the legal director of a civil liberties organization to work on climate.
1: It's hard to focus on individual rights or wealth inequality if literally they can't breathe the air, or there's fires pushing them out of their communities or their homes, and and they're having to restart somewhere else. And so it's just become so clear to me that this fight that I, I was really deeply engaged in to protect the LGBTQI community needs the foundation of a safe climate and a safe environment in order for it to really succeed.
0: Matt Dos Santos spoke with our producer, Rachel Ward.
2: I wanted to talk a little bit about where you live and what the environment is like and where you might see the effects of climate change.
1: Sure. So currently I live in Portland, Oregon, And like many people, we're seeing the effects of climate change all around us. I think April was the hottest April that Portland has ever seen. The change in temperature is becoming palpable, I think. And I know that, you know, we have three digit days during the summer. Sometimes we have weeks of over 100 degree weather, which is just so odd because we're basically adjacent to a, you know, a temperate rainforest. And so those, that has consequences. So we are now experiencing a drought, which is incredibly early to experience a drought in the Pacific Northwest this early in the season. And I, I have to think that that will lead to more devastating wildfires like the ones that we've seen all along the West Coast. And I think that this is in some ways going to be our new normal. And and that's really frightening. And it's um it's pretty sad.
2: It's one of those problems where like, just as soon as you start to wrap your head around it, some other element of it changes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what your your actual job is and, and what your sort of portfolio is?
1: Sure, so uh, as the managing attorney at our Children's Trust, I oversee the legal program. I do that in close collaboration with Julia Olson, who is our executive director and chief legal counsel. And what we do is bring cases on behalf of youth, so they're youth-led cases, to challenge government's actions and policies that enshrine fossil fuels into our economy. And we bring constitutional challenges. We also bring challenges to the ways that we use our our transportation system, our energy grid, and, and how that ties into our sort of long standing dependence on fossil fuels. And so we bring cases around the world. We have cases in a bunch of different states. We have a federal case, Juliana versus United States. And we also have cases that we bring in partnership with other organizations and law firms in other countries.
2: This is a very like, U.S.-centric question, and I'm not totally sure that I'm even phrasing it right, but I'm curious if there is a constitutional right to a safe environment or, or to a protected environment.
1: That's a great question. And I think that it's something that comes up a lot in cases as well as sort of in the conversation, right, which is that there are some states and some countries that expressly have a constitutional right to a safe environment. Literally, it's written into the Constitution that there's some protection of the environment. And what we have been doing is litigating those rights and trying to say to the courts, that those rights have to be enforceable, that they're meaningless if they're just sort of in writing in the Constitution, which is at core, it's our fundamental social contract, right, with the government. And if those words don't mean anything, what value do they have? And certainly the, the thinking from the founding of this country has shifted about what humans' impacts are on the world. But even back then, all of the documents that were written at the time of the founding of our country There is an undercurrent of wanting to protect the natural beauty of the United States. And it doesn't make sense for the Constitution to exist and to guarantee things like life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness if we don't have a safe environment in which to pursue those things.
2: Where did the strategy of litigation uh, on behalf of the environment come from?
1: So it was born about 10 years ago from conversations that Julia Olson, our executive director, was having with a colleague and a a friend talking about that very thing that we just discussed, that the Constitution doesn't make sense unless it is interpreted as having a fundamental right to a safe climate, to a stable climate. And so out of that conversation as it became more and more clear that this was a viable pathway in the courts. In 2015, the Juliana case was born. And so the strategy was essentially born out of a conversation about how our basic rights couldn't exist if our world didn't exist, if our world wasn't safe for those rights to thrive in.
2: And what is the story of the Juliana case? What is Juliana seeking?
1: The Juliana case is essentially a case brought on behalf of 21 youth, many of whom are now adults because the case has been going on for so long. And the case is essentially seeking a declaration by the courts that there is a fundamental right to a a stable environment. And part of that comes from just seeing... That those positions that they're taking in DC and and internationally aren't actually based on the best available science, but are instead based on political compromises. And we can sort of talk about whether that's appropriate or not, right? Because obviously politicians are going to engage in political compromises. That is at core their job. And I have no illusions about that. But this is something that's so urgent and is so incredibly uh, necessary that we take immediate action now. And that needs to be based on the science that supports what we need, which is essentially a tremendous reduction in our global emissions. Starting, frankly, with the United States, the leading emitter for decades, right? So it's needing those changes now. It's a time where political compromise won't get us the solutions that we need to have a world where we and, and future generations can live safely.
2: How do you guys sort of pick your battles? How do you find your plaintiffs, and how do you choose your issues?
1: Well, a lot of times the plaintiffs find us. So there is this tremendous youth movement born organically, that they're youth that are very, very concerned about the natural environment around them. And they've heard about our children's trust either through the Juliana litigation or through our our plaintiffs who are all very active. And they talk to each other and they they reach out to us. And so a lot of our plaintiffs come to us. And so between having youth almost, you know, every day kind of knocking on our door saying, please help us act now and assessing the legal landscape of the jurisdiction and where they live, that's typically how our cases are born. And frankly, I think we would probably have many, many more cases if we just had limitless resources.
2: What is it like working with these young people? Are they do they hate talking on the phone? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of them would be sort of in the Gen Z kind of cohort, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing working with youth. They bring not just sort of the energy of youth to the table, but they also bring strategy and thoughtfulness and compassion and a real vision for a just world that I think can get lost sometimes as we get older and maybe more cynical or, or more willing to sort of compromise our position. I am consistently surprised by the diversity of youth that come to us. They care deeply about the natural world for their own set of reasons. Some of them care deeply about their indigenous traditions that they see literally falling off the side of a sea cliff because of erosion and sea level change or increased storms. There's other youth that are seeing the impacts of climate change around them. If they're, they're located in New Orleans, they've seen the ways that hurricanes devastate them and, and literally force them to be houseless. And I think they're frankly tired of being told by adults that they have to be patient. They have to wait. These things will happen slowly over time and like look at the changes around them. And they just don't buy it. And I get that. I can see why they would no longer buy the promises of adults that they should be patient. They're probably also right that they just don't have time. We are on a precipice of uh, move from catastrophes that grow in frequency and size to catastrophes that become irreversible. Sea level change, polar ice caps that melt, releasing methane into the environment, making it even warmer, making our sea levels rise faster. And as that, Snowball starts to turn into an avalanche. I think they're right in saying, no, now is the time for change.
2: It makes me wonder, with such a diversity of different kid personalities, what your interactions with parents are like.
1: The majority of them are under the age of 18. And so obviously they need their parents' permission. And I think that, you know, we sort of take it for granted, actually, a little bit in the United States that this is something that is maybe safe to do. Parents are primarily concerned with their kids being targeted, not just targeted in the like online trolling kind of way. So a lot of our cases, actually, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to keep our plaintiffs safe and to make sure that they get to have their voice heard and they have as little repercussions from a world that doesn't really want them heard.
2: Given that the legal system can be a very slow process and the urgency of climate change is very high. What does a win look like for you guys?
1: A win can look like a lot of things for us. A win can look like it did in one of our cases in Colorado where a court did not side with us, but that then the legislature took the remedies from the case and started to try and adopt them into state law. A win can look like a powerful dissent, you know, pages and pages writing out all of the reasons why these youth are, are ripe. Right. A win can look like, Bringing more attention to the perils of climate change and the perils of believing that the Constitution can kind of live out in the ether and guarantee us life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness without this underpinning foundation for a stable climate. And we're seeing all of those things happening more often. And so, frankly, I think the win is going to come in this tide of changing public opinion and then getting the courts to then follow. The way I see it is that it's this mosaic of various things playing and various forces applying pressure in different areas. And my hope is that it won't be too late.
2: For someone who's not able to do this exact work, be a plaintiff or or be a lawyer, what do you think from your work is something that folks can take away and is sort of replicable like at home? How do you want to see people amplify your work outside of this specific lane that you're in?
1: Sure. I mean, there's so many ways, right? Like everything from literally spreading the message through the tools that we have today through social media, through letter writing campaigns to their elected representatives at the local, state and federal level, those matter. I know that from talking to elected representatives that they do listen to every call, they do read every email. If they're receiving a hundred emails about one thing and one or two about another thing, you can imagine what they're going to focus their time on. And then the other thing that I would say that is really important is to continue to take care of yourselves and to take care of each other. Youth today are living in a world that seems dystopian and can be really hard. And I think it's easy to sort of like succumb to that feeling of hopelessness, especially as you see literally a world plagued around you. Remembering that those sort of that kindness that you share with each other, with that you share with your friends and your and your classmates and, and the people around you actually is is fuel. It's fuel for justice. And it's it's a way to keep moving and to keep each other engaged in this fight, which is I think the most important fight that youth can engage in today.
2: It's interesting to hear you talk about that discouragement and the need to kind of like keep spirits up, because I imagine you wind up for some of the kids that you support in these cases that you wind up sort of being this like non-parental support figure or like a, a cool or relative <laughs> or something. And I wonder if from that experience, you've got advice for parents who have kids that are experiencing climate grief in some way or or that sense of despair.
1: In some ways, it's the same advice that I give parents that have youth that are coming out as LGBT. One is to trust your kid, to trust their experience, and to listen to them. And I think that it is sometimes easy to be dismissive because we think of young people not having the same burdens that that adults have and and maybe that they don't see the big picture, but if I've learned anything over the years, it's that it's often the adults that don't see the big picture anymore and that we're so concerned about the details of everyday life that we sort of lose our perspective on what it means to live in a just society. So trusting your kid, listening to your kid, and then to the best of your ability to be supportive, even if it's something that is not your experience. And I can see the instinct to be protective and to not want um, your kid to be out fighting for something they believe in because of the potential for pain that they might experience. But I think that that's when when we have to trust them that this is what they want to do and that this is a fight that they think is worth fighting.
2: This show is going to be heard by a lot of people who are in leadership positions at various levels. And I... Want to give you a chance to sort of talk directly to them and ask them for one change that you need in order to help with your work.
1: What we really need is courageous leaders right now to take bold action and to take big steps forward. And maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway, which is that, you know, sometimes we talk about it like, well, what if they set this target and they miss it? And I think that if I were in a position of leadership, I would want my legacy to be that I tried and I didn't make it.
2: Right. Like you tried and it actually wasn't enough.
1: (laughs) Right. But that's sort of the struggle that we're in. and, And I think that that's the hardest thing for people to wrap their brains around. And it makes sense. Every generation alive today has lived in a world where we have a deep dependency to fossil fuels. And we can't even see a world where that isn't part of our reality. And that's why it's so important to let the youth speak because they're not quite addicted yet and they see a world where that is possible. And I hope that other leaders around the world take that courageous step to listen to their youth and, and trust that these solutions need to come now.
2: So that's more like the macro level, like talking to leadership. So the more micro level of that question is for somebody who's in that place of paralysis, like not knowing where to start in terms of acting on climate change in their own life or in their own community. Do you have any advice for that person about what to do, how to start tackling climate change?
1: I think with any movement, it starts with small steps. And I mean that at a personal level. I don't mean that governments are allowed to do that, to be clear. But I think it starts with the small steps around us, and it could be running some kind of beach cleanup, getting involved, building those community networks, giving yourself an opportunity to experience what it is to be engaged in a, a community struggle and to organize. And I think it is easy to give into the paralysis of of just how bad things are and how sometimes it can feel truly hopeless. And what I have found to be the sort of solve for that is to take a step to help someone else. If I help my neighbor with some small action that they're taking to make the world a safer place for a future generation, that helps me see that there is hope in the world and that there are people who care. And we all do it at the level that we can do it at. And I think that's the other thing that I would sort of caution people against is engaging in that comparison game of like, oh, well, if I'm not Greta Thornburg speaking to the UN, then I'm not making a difference. And I think that, you know, Greta and our youth plaintiffs and everybody will say that that's not true, like that, that their voices are only important because of all of the other people who don't have that platform, who are supporting them, who are taking the small steps in their communities to make this vision for a a stable world and a more just world a reality. It has become very clear to me that all of these issues, like of today's struggles, be them for racial justice or for LGBTQ equality or closing the gap on wealth inequality, that they're all deeply interrelated. They're all born out of these various systems that have just existed for so long, they seem like part of who we are. And the thing that I've, I've learned, especially from working with youth, is that they're not part of who we are. We've been slowly, over time, inculcated to think that that is how we are. But a just world is possible out there if we're willing to sort of set aside our vision of what we think is achievable and what is real and start to do what we think is right and what we think is just. There are these deep intersections between what we see on the streets around police brutality and racial injustice and the climate movement. And it is really important for us to see how all of these different issues are connected and how we need to support each other and to support these various movements if we're going to create a world that is actually sustainable.
0: It's complicated, but there is one simple action we can take to slow climate change. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. We've known that for decades, and yet 84% of the energy used on our planet still comes from oil, natural gas, and coal. Youth are leading the way, calling for divestment from fossil fuel companies and fighting new oil leases and pipelines. They want a fair shot at a future, and they're willing to sue for it. Inequality has long gone unchecked in our warming world. But the good news is that solving the climate crisis is also an opportunity to address wealth inequality by creating new green jobs. It's an opportunity to reckon with racial disparities in health by cleaning up industrial pollution that's more likely to affect people who live in de facto segregated communities. Building more mass transit is an opportunity to increase accessibility for wheelchair users and climate adaptation solutions to abate flooding, to preserve water, to stabilize food insecurity, also help reduce gender-based violence. It's time for each and every one of us to look around and see where we have the power to make decisions that prioritize our climate in everything we do. When we do, we'll be making the world more just. Because if we want to survive, We need to create a fairer future for everyone. There's no denying it.
2: No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast, is produced by UN News and Good to Do Today. Our producer at UN News is Connor Lennon, and Natalie Hutchison is our promo and distribution manager. Our producers at Good to Do Today are Emma Jacobs, Jay Venables, and Rachel Ward. Our managing producer at UN News is Matthew Wells, and our executive producer is Mita Hosali. Brayden Alexander is our audio engineer, and our theme song is by Memory Palace, courtesy of Marmoset. This episode features archival audio from Florida Today and additional music from Marmoset. Many, many thanks to Daniel Birnbaum, Helen Brito, Holly Bustamante, Fang Chen, Martina Donlin, Bratishta Jain, Robert Nishofsky, Regina Merkova, June Park, Ezra Sergi, Sam Tracy, Matilda Felino, Freesound.org, and the UN Environment Program. You can find more stories about climate action from UN News at news.un.org.